This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Carston. In a world increasingly interconnected by digital media and cultural exchanges, the phenomenon known as the Korean wave, or Hallyu, has taken centre stage. But what propels the global fascination with Korean culture from K-pop to cinema, and how does it shape cultural perceptions worldwide? Well, today I'm joined by Associate Professor of Korean Society and Culture at the School of Media, Creative Arts and Social Inquiry here at Curtin University, Joe Elfing Huang. We explored the multifaceted dimensions of the Korean wave, its impact on global entertainment and the cultural bridges it builds across nations. Now, if you're keen to delve deeper into the intricacies of this cultural phenomenon, be sure to check out the resources in our show notes. This is a very wide-ranging question to start. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how you're going to answer this in in one hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, um, uh, the Korean wave or, or Hallyu uh, is, is a prominent global phenomenon today. But look, its its origins and, and evolution are less known to many. Could you take us through those early days of the Korean wave? How did it begin, and what were the key factors that contributed to the rise and the spread of Korean pop culture around the world? Yeah, well, it it was a bit of a slow process to start off with. So, of course, Korean culture wasn't exactly well-known to start off with. So if we go back to the ancient history of 1990s, Korea had pop culture and, of course, had come through, if you know anything about Korea's history, it just come through this sort of uh, political dictatorship period from 60s to 80s where there was a lot of censorship on what you could say and uh, pop culture tended to be quite... um, calm and more focused on sort of romantic uh, kind of trends and so forth. But uh, from 1992 onwards, when there was this kind of democratization of Korea, that's where uh, the government started really thinking about maybe culture could become one of those things that we could. So there was a new policy of globalization that the president then, Kim Jong-sam, called Segehwa, so globalization policy. Um, So with that, there was this idea that uh, Korea was going to become a cinema superpower. And so they put a lot of effort into enhancing cinema. But at this point, there was nothing to do with music, really. So you're telling me it was actually government motivated? Well, yes and no. So part of it was about democratization movement. So you could suddenly, in 1992, you know, there was the first uh, election where you could you know, first democratically elected president, and then suddenly there was no censorship to really worry about. So uh, a lot of artists in Korea domestically started sort of experimenting with things, and there was uh, hip-hop came big time to Korea, and there were some younger artists who started then experimenting with hip-hop. So Toteji and the Boys was the first band that really hit it big, in 1994, and they they came to this live program, and they um, they sang this song called "Nan Arayo I Know," which is about kind of teenage angst and how parents are so unfair and school is so hard and all of this stuff. And all the judges on that program they absolutely hated it. You can still watch it on YouTube if you want to look it up. And the audiences went wild and suddenly Hodeji and Boys became this massive kind of like little Korean Beatles mania. Uh, And that was the sort of first time when pop music became or a band became a kind of fan 
phenomenon, but that was just domestic at that point. So this is early 1990s. But the thing was, it was embraced locally, first and foremost, which is, uh, I guess, very different to, uh, I guess, our cultural context, where we tend to look outward and perhaps don't support our uh, our local artists, perhaps to the same extent when they're starting out. In, in South Korea, bang, it was embraced from the outset. Yeah, well... It was a youth phenomenon. So it was a youth that all their parents were really worried about this. And there, there were all sorts of uh, sort of when Sotheji and Boys became really big by 1997 when they then finally disbanded as well. They um, There were all sorts of conspiracy theories that it was kind of, you know, there was sort of satanic influences. And, you know, if you played it backwards and all this kind of thing you could hear secret messages because why else would all these young people get so excited about this thing but it was a really big phenomenon at that point and then of course at this point um, the government is really not in the picture in that you know there was a push to push Korean films but auteur films you know sort of slow moving amazing films that would um, sort of win prizes in Cannes <laughs> and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not so much about blockbusters or TV series. These were very much focused on Korean domestic audiences, as were kind of mainstream music as well. Because remember, at this point, you could have maybe LPs and then cassette players and things. So you don't have social media yet at this point. So no one was really expecting there to be this big international interest in Korean music. And when I was living in Korea in 1990s, um, no I, no one would have known the, the people I listened to, uh, you know, overseas. So it wasn't really a thing. You were so cool, weren't you? <laughs> so you were very cutting edge. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but it was very cool music. And, you know, once you learned, you had to learn Korean. There were not really very many um, English uh, sort of lyrics or anything and it was only un- until sort of towards the end of end of 1990s so you know you look at 1996 and between 1996-1998 uh, you know when you have these first bands that are then being produced and the production idea came really from Japan and it, it borrowed bits uh, from America as well you know so the idea of having a boy band or a girl band and then producing them um at this point, I know the Korean government takes quite a lot of credit for the <laughs> for the spread of Hallyu. And it's true that they, towards, as soon as it started really picking up, they did provide a lot of support in terms of uh, tax cuts and uh, helping out in various other ways in promoting Korean pop culture. But at the beginning, it was really just few people who were quite... Um, entrepreneurial and forward-looking and kind of we're looking at the domestic Korean market and the first big band that really hit it big was called G.O.D, which of course you'd think spells God, but it's actually Groove Overdose. So um, this band just hit it massive. So it became another teenage phenomenon uh, and it sold a lot of... uh, I think CDs at that point, and teenagers are so good at getting what they want. So at this point, then Korea's GDP is quite high. There's a high level of employment. Uh, people have a lot of uh, money to spend, especially teenagers. So, so you have this generation now who 
you know, they live in this democratic society. Um, there is a lot of free time. You go to university, got nothing to worry about. And then the um, Asian financial crisis hits. And that becomes a big turning point in, in Korea's um, kind of entertainment industry because suddenly there's a lot of unemployment. This is, this is a really big um it's catastrophe. I was in Korea when it happened and, and, you know, the mass employment, um, unemployment and, and especially for young people, you know, suddenly the rules have changed. Did the material change in terms of what the bands were writing about, you know, if they still existed? Yeah. Uh, well, they were more bands, you know, certainly because they, they were still selling because people want to escape, you know, reality and, uh, but but CD sales, they really dropped because people had less money. But around this time, and then you have other things coming up. So mobile phones, for example. So what the um, companies very quickly realized that you could do things like, you know, have file sharing it starts becoming a thing. The problem was that you could do that illegally. So you can file share illegally. And at this point, it starts going overseas as well to China and other places. So this is where the kind of globalization of Korean music starts really take place. It starts actually quite illegally. So so, um, so there's file sharing uh, and that, of course, then impacts things like CD sales. Um, but then they think, okay, maybe we can have hook ringtones. So ringtones you could start then selling and uh, you could download these and it's, I don't know, a couple of dollars a pop. So then you find that around this time, a lot of the songs actually have what we call a hook, which could then become a ringtone as well. And you could distinguish your ringtone. So what you have increasingly appearing are these sort of consumer sort of things that you can add, like that personalize your, your phone or would it be fair to say that, that the technology was starting to influence the way uh, music was being written? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, you know, things like um, performances, live performances, you know, people going to listen and, and, and fan products. Uh, and then the fan movement itself becomes a little bit more organised. So... Uh, now we have BTS, of course, and we have BTS Army. So if we skip 20 years forward, uh, you know, this is in the kind of early 2000s. Uh, you start getting quite organized uh, fandoms. Uh, they self-organize and they start having quite a lot of influence also in uh, in what becomes popular or they also start supporting the artists. So uh, there are a few cases where management companies, which are, producing these bands, right? They um, they try to, for example, sack a, a band member, but then the fans. Oh, well, there's uproar. There's, there's an uproar, uproar in the streets. And suddenly you have this kind of, it's not just the management uh, company or the production company uh, and the managers and the band, which is often produced band, you know, trained from early age and in, in various uh, kind of art forms and, mm. and foreign languages and even how to pose. <laughs> and, and combinations are, are put together with complementary skill sets and, and talents, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And and this one sta- this this kind of approach starts quite um, early. So in 1990s, that it borrows from the Japanese Aidoru uh, system, uh, but then it becomes a really sort of its own Korean format as time goes onwards. And now, of course, it's a, it's it's an industry in its own, own right. It's, it can be very problematic today. 
but in those days, it was interestingly the fans that would then often stand up for the artists in those early days. And then as the file sharing and internet starts getting faster, um, you know, the, suddenly Hallyu or Korean wave becomes quite big in China. And that, that really is the, just the a, start. Just a small market, really, isn't it? Just China? a small market. So it, it really helps to capture a small market like <laughs> China. Um, and China, of course, you know, there's a lot of more, um, more sort of it's opening up. Uh, there's a lot of interest. Uh, Korean pop culture is something that is really appealing to a lot of people who might otherwise have an issue with American pop culture, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it really appealed to Southeast Asian markets as well very quickly. Um, and as soon as you get into that fandom movement, and, and th this is where we actually see a big uptick in, mm. in Korean pop culture and its uptake is, is um, sort of in Europe or Australia or UK or US in 2000s. There will be some people who, who know something about Korean pop culture, right? but it's very small. Yeah. And it tends to be second generation, kind of Asian Australian or Asian American or what have you. But um, in in sort of from sort of 10, 2010s onwards, uh, I think what you really start seeing is uh, internet is really fast. YouTube is becomes mm. really an important way of uh, – and the videos become more interesting. And then it's just – it's really appealing music. And then you have the fandoms. So Blackpink has its own uh, fandom, you know. Um, BTS obviously is really has got a very famous uh, fandom, which is called BTS Army, and so forth. So those places then become places of belonging as well. Look, there there are there are so many avenues we need to go down, and I'm going to try and work through them. This is this is an incredible potted history of the uh, the the growth of of Hallyu globally, but. Um, uh, initially, you said that the government of South Korea was, uh, I guess, encouraging a, a cultural push. Yeah. Uh, did this in any way uh, resemble, uh, well, does this resemble what they had envisaged back I in the early 90s? It, does it look anything like they would have thought it could shape up as? That's hard to say because I wasn't there in the government that time, but, <laughs> but I would... I would imagine that it didn't. So uh, the idea was that um, Korea was going to be a bit like Italy in a way that it, it would showcase its its high culture. So, you know, you would you had Korea Foundation, which is a Korean, uh, it sits under Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of modeled a little bit after, you know, organizations like Japan Foundation, which really pushed it for things like tea ceremonies and kind of traditional culture, right? Mm -hmm. So there is that showcasing so every country wants to showcase their traditional what we call authentic sometimes authentic culture or something that has been around for a long time such a loaded word isn't it? it is yeah i just sort of rolled my eyes there when i said authentic um but um uh, the idea was really that it was going to be about design maybe food uh and and so forth but uh, i don't think anyone expected this kind of k-pop because of, of course k-pop in itself is is a it's a quite tricky one because it's got that K dash so you you sort of associate it with Korea, but it's also it kind of takes life of its own so it's quite difficult to control. So for example, uh, we can take um, the incident with Trump's um, when Donald Trump 
uh, was organizing a rally. Uh, and this was around the time when there was the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and the K-pop fans, uh, BTS fans in particular, uh, didn't like this idea of, of having a Trump rally, Trump rally. So they basically took over it and they booked a lot of tickets <laughs> to this rally. I remember that. That was and, amazing. And, and so this is very awkward for Korean governments because, of course, America is a big partner and important strategic ally. Um, so I can just only imagine, of course, I wasn't there and I, I don't have any evidence, but uh, I can only imagine that there were a few sweaty palms when uh, they read about this and you know, or found out that these K-pop, so K dash as in Korean pop fans, <laughs> you know. So there were some American Republican kind of hardliners who felt that this was uh, Korean um, Koreans doing something, of mm, course, but yep. uh, Officially. of course fans who were fans of Korean culture oh, rather than Korean people. Oh, it was a, a haven for conspiracy theorists. One thing that's apparent through your potted history of of Hallyu and K-pop within that is the importance of timing in in the way that it's been able to grow and evolve. Do, do, would you agree with that? It, it's, it's been a, a confluence of many factors, including the uh, I guess the adoption and the, the development of technology in line with with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. It, very serendipitous in many ways, right? So you have not only uh, Korean domestic industries and, and production companies and talent, which is really high. So let's not forget that either. You know that the artists are actually very talented and they are picked from early age and they're highly trained. And, and it's very difficult to become a K-pop star, right? You have to actually be on the top at the top of your game. Um, but then there's, of course, the the issue of you have the technology to spread this. And then you have the ability of create online communities. And then even COVID worked on in, in favor of, of K-pop movements because, you know, people are stuck at home. They are looking for something to belong to. You know, people are feel very isolated. So what we actually see that during COVID, uh, you know, a lot of these fandoms grow um, and people find places of, online belonging, which feel very real. And then as restrictions lift, they go to um, see these bands live. And then you have local chapters. So like, for example, in Perth, you know, we have local BTS army chapter, you know, each bigger city would have one. Um, and so I don't, of course, know how often they meet and, and so forth. But but there is a local and global presence, which is quite exciting. So I'm, I'm really interested in in. Um, cable fandoms because for a sociologist they're so interesting that you have an online virtual uh, site of belonging which is very real sometimes even more real than I don't know your school friends for example uh, but it's not just younger uh, fans it's also many people in their 60s right. 70s there's also granny fans so you can look online you know the people knitting <laughs> PTSD. there's an inclusivity about it very much. And, and I think that's been one of the things that uh, is also a point of pride for a lot of these fan groups that they feel that they're very diverse. So, for example, in the US, uh, many African-Americans, they feel that they feel very included and welcome to these groups. Um, and you have, for example, uh, in some Southeast uh, Asian countries, uh, you have cover bands who do sort of uh, dancing, K-pop dancing, and they have their own fandoms as well. So it's it's sort of, you don't really need to have money to be a fan 
you just need access to internet. And they need, so, so even things like going to, um, I don't know, um, watch them live. I mean, that's really expensive. So say if you wanted to go and say, see BTS or Blackpink live in Melbourne, that'll set you mm -hmm. <laughs> for quite a few hundred dollars, yeah, right? Yeah. But if you have a cover band who's doing just the dance moves on the streets of, I don't know, somewhere in Thailand or Cambodia or something, you don't really have to spend that much money. Uh, you, you can just enjoy it like a flash mob and... Uh, you know, do that sort of thing. Um, so particularly the kind of K-pop dancing as well. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy to enter. You don't have to do any dance training. Uh, you can just go and enjoy. So so it's, it's kind of, K-pop is super interesting because it's not necessarily always about Korea or Korean culture, but it, it can become very localized around this idea of Korean culture, which it may have may or may not have anything to do with actual Korean culture or Korean society. And a, an approximation. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, look, look. A couple of years ago, when I when I sat there at at my my daughter's year three uh, school uh, song and dance recital, and uh, I saw them singing and dancing to BTS, I, I knew that the you know it, it had gone full circle. It, it was here. We were listening and watching K-pop. Um, in the back blocks of suburban Perth. I mean, it was just demonstrated and, you know, in full effect for me. What I want to know from you is what about film? What is the current shape of Korean film? How would you describe uh, it as a genre? What are the hallmarks? Uh, can I go back to that point though? Because, you know, sorry. <laughs> I'm sure, to do absolutely. Because you know, that, uh, that Perth, uh, you know, having Korean pop culture playing in Perth, like... I agree with you. I think it's one of the most interesting and exciting cultural phenomenon um, in today's pop culture because it not only is this all in Korean and then you have maybe some English thrown in in, in these songs, it's very catchy and there's this whole thing about how authentic it is, right? You know, is it just a copy of American pop culture? But we all know that pop culture is just this mishmash of, you know, you go wherever you want to go and you you kind of, yep. it's whatever sort of catches the audience of, of whoever is listening. But it's incredible that Korea, perhaps because it, you don't, a lot of people don't have preconceived ideas about what Korea might be like. Uh, if you're a bit older, you might think Korean War yeah. or you might think North Korea, but kind of K-pop is imagined, this kind of, it's become this imagined the kind of very neutral space that people can imagine and consume whichever way they like. And that's why it's quite... It's, you know, a, it's open and it's, it's without open. restriction. That's right. And, and it does, you don't feel like you, you have to have some kind of... Like if you, if you like, I don't know, Avengers or uh, American pop culture, it, it almost, you feel like you have to somehow approve of America as a, as a nation, right? So, so for a lot of um, countries, like I don't know if you're in... Middle East, for example, K-pop is really safe mm. thing to consume because it's just just Korea, right? That's, and that's Chinese, <laughs> yeah, Chinese pop culture is really interesting. Yeah, but um, and Japanese too. But it's it for some it may come with with kind of a baggage. There's no subversive risk or, or perceived subversive risk to attaching yourself to to K-pop. Yeah, and I think this is where Korean government has been quite clever. And they've taken a huge risk as well. Is that they, when they then uh, sell Korea for to tourists, 
they use these phrases like imagine your career. So, you know, you come and you you imagine what you want career to be, but it's it's very vibrant and, you know, it's got these lively aspects to it and, and you too can be part of career story. So you feel that you're included in it rather than just observing from afar. So I think that's what's really made Korean pop culture so popular is that it's so inclusive it doesn't feel it feels safe and it's accessible to even kids in Perth. Well, Associate Professor Joe Helfing Huang, can we look at that from a South Korean perspective? Yes. Is there such thing as a Hallyu purist? What is the view back in South Korea about how uh, it's evolving globally and how it's being consumed? I don't think anyone does pop culture and thinks anything is pure. So I think I think it's really interesting that um, a lot of... I've read some media commentary about um, K-pop and there's been some criticism that it's, it's just copying. It's inauthentic. It's copying American pop culture. And just like we talked earlier, you know, this whole issue of authenticity in K-pop, I think is, is, is just something that it's a non-conversation, really, because all culture is inauthentic in some ways. Now, of course, there may be some people who are a little bit worried about what's happening to traditional Korean culture. Uh, you know, is traditional Korean culture going to be uh, somehow forgotten or is it going to subsume? But what we actually find is that you have the what we call kugak, you know, kuk country and artist music. So you have the traditional Korean music. And that's actually got a little bit of a boost out of this as well. It still needs a lot of support from government, of course, because it's not mainstream in Korea either. Korean kids listen to K-pop as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Taylor Swift and all of that. But um, yeah, it it's it, traditional music for example it takes a lot of training uh traditional pansori singing it takes a lot of training you know all of these sort of uh, outdoor theater forms like mass dance um they are being supported and a lot of foreigners actually if you go to for example as an exchange student if you wanted to go to korea you can probably join a university club and get a little bit of a feel of what it's what it's like uh, there is a very strong uh, kind of policy and legis- kind of legislation behind trying to protect what is seen as cultural heritage and particularly intangible cultural heritage. So uh, there is probably very little worry about, um, you know, whether K-pop itself is going to somehow affect uh, the, the sort of intangible heritage mm. of, of Korea. It's The worry is more... With it's very similar to Australia, is there enough funding for the arts? Sure. <laughs> you know? So, so it's very similar because it's not mainstream and not everybody sits at home and listens to traditional pansori sure. singing. Uh, so the markets are much smaller. But but from a Hallyu perspective, it, it, because it it seems to be so, it it doesn't take a specific shape necessarily. Are, are you saying that back in South Korea? Uh, there are no hard and fast rules that need to be adhered to to be considered part of of how you or to be considered authentic K-pop. It's it it, it 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 the fact that it's evolving is very much accepted at home as well. Oh yeah, well people are very proud of the fact that K-pop has made it big. You know, it's seen as a commercial product, 
But that's where you also then find that you have the so-called real musicians, you know, who uh, do sort of, you know, underground music. Korean punk is really very, it's it's so good. And there are so many different kinds of, you know, uh, hybrid music um, forms that have sort of evolved using traditional Korean instruments. Uh, so like Jambinai, for example, who were in Perth a couple of years back. Uh, they do this sort of post-rock where they use traditional instruments and then they use sort of heavy metal influences and and, and rock and lights and things. So it's a very, um, when you sit in the audience, you know, you, you feel it. So it's a Sigur Ross of uh, of South Korean music. Uh, yeah, and there's many of them. So it's 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 so the the non-K-pop Korean music scene is vibrant. It's it's really exciting, very exciting, but it's not known. So this is, I think, one of my personal regrets is that a lot of people know about K-pop, and that's commercial, and it's made for commercial purposes, and it makes a lot of money for the GDP. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so much more. There's so much more. So as my as a scholar of Korean studies and also someone who teaches at university in Korean studies, my hope is always like when I teach Korean pop culture here at Curtin, for example, um, what we want to do is we talk about K-pop, but we also want to introduce students to these other uh, forms of Korean pop culture, including, I don't know. Uh, film. TV, TV series, film. Talk to me about film. Oh, where, where, where are we at with with uh, with South Korean film? Do, do, is there a, a favouring towards a certain genre that we'd recognise as? Well, I don't know, horror or or uh, uh, rom com or uh, uh, far away. Yeah, there's all sorts, and it depends what what it's produced for. So Netflix has really changed the game in Korea. So, say for example, so you have film, and then you have a TV series. So TV series are these kinds of soaps or comedies and, and and so forth and they typically have about like 16 episodes and they have a lot of cliffhangers and uh, and and they are very easily consumable and they're super popular overseas and then you have the Korean film uh, which is more so you, you usually don't have um, film directors who then do TV directing or film uh, you know uh, so directors or screen script writers who would then also do TV series. So it's, it's a, like a very still, divided. Still very siloed. At this very stage. siloed. But with Netflix, what's happened is um, Netflix has now opened up an opportunity because it's not produced by Korean broadcasting companies. Uh, they are that a lot of the films and TV series are something between. So Korean films tend to be quite. Uh, they focus very much on the visual landscape. Uh, on the so it's very much about not so much about the narrative, but it's very much about how the film makes you feel. So you, if you watch Korean movies, you uh, you're often left quite disturbed at the end of it. So either because there's a lot of blood or gruesome murders, or something really unexpected happens, like the main character dies. Spoiler Far too early somehow. And 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 so or the ending is somehow open. And this is a really traditional Korean narrative uh, structure that you, you don't have clear conclusion. So Western storytelling tends to have a clear plot and a kind of hero's journey. But Korean storytelling is more, I guess, Taoist in a sense. There's got no beginning and end. Mm -hmm. It is very much about how 
the narrative makes you feel or the visuals make you feel. So you try to, as a as a director, you try to kind of evoke some kind of response from the audiences. So as, as such, it doesn't make it very easily consumable. So you don't, you never go and see a Korean movie and think, oh, this is going to be fun and easy to watch. You're kind of <laughs> going there thinking, oh, <laughs> how am I going to be challenged this time? So if you want to have the fun and sort of, oh, this was a hard day, I need some light entertainment, just any TV drama, go for it. <laughs> Knock yourself out and you probably feel uplifted because everyone lives. <laughs> what did the success of Parasite mean to the, the film industry? Oh, that was so important. So for Korean government especially, that kind of international recognition has been very important. And, um, you know, when you're a divided country, you know, you have north and south, uh, it's not just about legitimacy of which Korea is more legitimate, right? It, it's also about, like, Korea was so poor in 1950s. Uh, it was completely destroyed by the war. It, it was seen as the basket case of all countries in the world. It was one of the poorest countries in the world. And it was... Uh, people were, you know, really super poor. And now it's only 70-something years, 80, what is it now? <laughs> Time's flying. Time, Time is flies, flying. right. 70-something years later, uh, 75 years later, and, and now we have, you know, one of the leading economies, Australia's top three trading partner that is leading the way in innovating cultural you know, global cultural sort of uh, innovations in film, you know, thinking about. So a lot of the Korean uh, film directors, for example, of course, they get a lot of uh, influences from from the sort of uh, film theories and, and uh, famous directors like Hitchcock and, 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 and so forth in the West, if you like, but also in Japan. Yeah. Um, and in China and, and other places. But but they are also always experimenting uh, because it's it's they have developed their own styles. So when you language, watch, yeah, yeah that's visual right. Visual language. Visual language is very, but it is very kind of noir-esque and uh, it is very um, often quite dark. Yeah. Uh, and and if it's comedy, it's very Korean comedy. So it doesn't, it, you have to kind of understand Korean sense of humor to get the, mm. the comedy. Uh, so for example, my, my brother is a cinematographer and he doesn't understand Korean comedy at all. He doesn't find it funny. Mm, mm. I find it hilarious. Um, <laughs> you've, you've had the benefit of many years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I speak Korean, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, I find it absolutely hilarious. You hinted at, well, in fact, you stated quite unequivocally that, um, that it's, it's been uh, economically such an important boon for the ongoing success and, and, and revitalisation of South Korea's economy over the, the last 70 or so years. Um, and we, we tend to, uh, in the mainstream, look at South Korea as, as a, a great exporter of, um, of electronic uh, consumer goods and, and cars. Um, but in terms of uh, its, its culture, value, what is the, I guess, the dollar value? Are? Is it comparable to those other exports now? Pretty much. I mean, you can even look at, um, oh, I should really look it up, but <laughs> the dollar value of just BTS mm. is is immense. You know, so you are talking uh, a significant chunk of Korea's GDP. And um, to be honest, I didn't really check what the, these last year's figures were, so I'd have to go and, and have a look at them. But 
we can safely say that it it is a, a significant enough uh, a chunk of Korea's GDP. Of course, it brings in a lot of things like tourism, and mm. that's a very important thing. But it's also things like selling um, cultural uh, sort of products and, and, and different formats, TV formats. Koreans are really good at coming up with TV mm. formats that then they sell on to hard-to-get markets like China. Uh, and also co-producing uh, a lot of international collaborations and things like that. So, so you know, you see bands like Coldplay, for example, doing a collaboration with BTS. I mean, that immediately, it's not just Coldplay that, that sells out of that, it's BTS as well. So all of that is, is income um, to, to Korea's, uh, you know, mm gross national product, if you like. Um, so it, it, Korea does have its own uh, appointments, and, and if not ministry, but it has its own office uh, that looks after uh, Korean pop culture, and it's a ministerial appointment. So it's a high-level appointment. So that's how seriously Korean government takes this industry. So they, they really have the producer's corner. I imagine that everybody in that office looks amazing. I think misconception, I like that though. But but if you're a minister, you have to look ministerial and mm -hmm. not like a K-pop star. Otherwise, no one's going to take you seriously. <laughs> it's pushed the boundaries of how do you, uh, how, how does government, what role does government play in supporting uh, the arts? Uh, it's Korea itself has got still obviously lots to do with um, supporting traditional arts, they do heavily, uh, but I think it does. I mean, I wish actually that Australian government would sort of look a bit more at what what the film industry has done in Korea, for example. Is that you're all either all in or all out kind of thing these days, mm. um, and also just I think what's really exciting about Korean say film industry is that they're very brave. And they, they kind of, they, they don't really care about, I mean, everyone wants to win prizes, but they still do their own thing. Mm. And then, so you create quite unique, exciting spectacles uh, in that way. But if you're really then making, so TV series, again, totally different thing. Commercial product, you want to appease the audiences. Mm. Mm. So... Maybe that's part of it is that they they have such clear two sides to yes. the entertainment industry. And then there's the Netflix, which is kind of a place where everything meets. <laughs> yes. Yes. The uh, great global uh, viewing marketplace, so to that's speak. That's right. Um, uh, look, I, I, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse, but um, I, I want to look at the effect of, of Hallyu and K-pop within this, the South Korean idiom and particularly... What is it like growing up in South Korea now? Uh, I, uh, when I was in South Korea in the late 2000s, there were, there were a couple of things that, that really stood out to me um, at the time. And that was the emphasis on, on technology and how important a part that, that played already back then. Uh, the, the, the access to high-speed public internet was phenomenal. It was, it was faster already then than what I'm receiving at home from my internet service provider in 2023. It was inc it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, uh, the government funded initiatives like uh, starting cities from scratch, like Incheon. And, um, uh, it, it's, it, you know, the, the ability to sort of look forward and, and concentrate on 
the future for the next generation. It was very much a part of being South Korean. The other thing I noticed at the time yeah. was uh, the that was the first place I'd seen selfie sticks become such a massive thing. That was a good couple of years before it became a thing in Australia. Yeah. And um, and so the, everybody we, we saw for the first time the the notion of inserting yourself into uh, into the backdrop and making your experience of the place that you're at making sure that everybody knows that you're part of that experience and that you were there and that you were having a good time. Um, uh, is there, a, I, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to ask, is there a, an inordinate pressure since then um, that, that K-pop and Hallyu has brought about in terms of being young in South Korea? Do you have to be a certain way because of, uh, I guess, how pervasive this culture has become within South Korea, not just globally? Yeah, I I think that overlaps a little bit with beauty cultures, I guess. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you K-pop style itself is is again a style that is produced for the stage. So even though you have K-pop stars who look amazing and they have dyed hair and, and you know they probably have surgery in many cases and so forth, that is the K-pop aesthetic. Um, so if you're, I don't know, a, a guy in 19, you know, who's in in their fifties working in a company, it's that those kinds of aesthetics are really irrelevant to you. But for younger people, um, of course, just like in Australia, the world is much more visual these days, um, and it's perhaps more to do with uh, selfies, and it's more to do with the appearing culture online. You know, just what you were talking about there, you know, you have to be seen to be doing things in order to almost exist. Or, you know, if you if you didn't take a selfie uh, and post it on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, then it didn't happen. Mm. Oh, you know, yep. There's no evidence that you've been in this amazing place. So with that, you, of course, then have to be, uh, you have to look selfie ready or you have to use... So, for example, Korean, um, I think Korean Samsung phones were some of the first ones that introduced a mm. um, a kind of beauty filter. Yeah, that's uh, So, you know, you quite often see people posting uh, selfies and you can see that there's a beauty filter that's been used and um, just, just the thing. So it can be quite panoptic, if you like. Mm. It can be quite... Um, hard for particularly young people to live in that kind of hypervisual. So if you have any kind of issue with your face, for example, or your appearance, um, it, it, it can be quite difficult um, not to do anything about it. But that doesn't mean that everybody does. Mm. Uh, and and there, there is a kind of anti-appearances uh, movement as well, where people, women in particular, refuse to use makeup. But then uh, there's also uh, a strong focus on on playing the part. So Irving Goffman, who's a famous sociologist, talks about front stage and backstage. Mm -hmm. and, and Korean uh, culture is very um, – there are quite clearly defined sort of rules on, um, you know, how to be part of the in-group. So, for example, if you work in a Samsung company, there is a Samsung way of – wearing clothes right even companies have got their own mm. sort of uh, dress codes so if if you're a young guy working for samsung you're probably expected to also ensure that 
you go to the gym and look fit. Because Sam, Samsung chic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty much. But then again, if you're a professor working at Seoul National University, you know, you don't want to look completely haggard, but you don't want to look like a K-pop star either because, you know, no one takes you seriously. So, so it just depends on the context. So if you're in a public facing uh, job, I don't know, work in a cafe, uh, then for sure, you know, you have to look after yourself. Mm. But it's also part of it is that Korean skincare products are really amazing. <laughs> they are cheap. So it's the access also to services that uh, make you look glowing are much cheaper, I can attest you. <laughs> so some, some things that are very expensive, say in Australia, because people don't really engage with those practices and, and opportunities to enhance your appearance are much cheaper and more available in Korea. So personally, I would say why not, you know, as long as it doesn't become obviously an, an issue. I look so for it's a, a for, cultural difference. Well, this is a fair 92-year-old. You look fantastic. Oh, uh, thanks so no. much. The <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Associate Professor Elfing Huang, uh, as, a, as an expert in Korean studies, uh, and this is to round us up, what do you see in the future for Hallyu and K-pop in particular? Do you see it taking shape in a certain way? What are you noticing now? So I think it's going to evolve. One of the things that I love about Korean culture, whether it's pop culture or whether it's Korean heritage, is that um, it always surprises you. So what form it will take, there is not knowing. But there is so much focus on... Uh, promoting and uh, supporting creativity, creative industries in Korea. You know, there is a really, you know that Korea ranks really high in maths and literacy. Also pays a lot of attention in education, which is quite harsh education sometimes and heavy education, but there's a heavy emphasis also on creativity. And uh, so... A lot of Korean young people choose to go self-employed as well, um, and they look for opportunities in that area. So creative arts is something that, and particularly in, in these kinds of digital arts, is, is, a, um, is a really growing industry. So I would just say, watch this space. I don't think Hallyu or Korean wave or Korean pop culture is going anywhere. Uh, now that it's become known and people seek it out, uh, regardless of age, you know, so there are a lot of people who stumble across Korean pop culture in their 40s, 50s, 60s, get hooked, uh, and then they look for more. So one of the warnings I guess I need to <laughs> leave with your listeners is that uh, watch out for Korean TV series once you start watching them. Uh, you get hooked. And uh, same might happen with K-pop if you get involved in fandoms and things. You might get hooked regardless of your age or gender or orientation. But um, yeah, I'm excited for Korea's pop culture going forward because um, what's coming around the corner, no one knows, but I'm sure it'll be exciting. That's an endlessly fertile pasture for you to keep, I guess, examining and studying and, and talking to us about well into the future. Exactly. Uh, Associate Professor Elfing Wang, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today. And 
uh, opening up a world uh, for a lot of us uh, in and, and an insight into how you and K-pop. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And don't forget to sign up for Korean Studies classes at Curtin. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear more from experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.